Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 10 of the podcast, the topic is a brief history of manufacturing software. Our guest is Rick Bolotta, partner at TwinThread and co-founder of ThingWorks. In this conversation, we talk about how Rick has shaped manufacturing software history and the lessons learned from being an early employee at Wonderware, the famous precursor to manufacturing automation back in 1993, a company first sold to British engineering giant Siba in 1998, which then merged with BTR to form Invences, which in turn merged with French multinational Schneider Electric, and later the C- CTO, Rick Bolotta was also the co-founder of Lighthammer Software, which was later acquired by SAP. Then, in 2009, founding ThingWorks, the first complete end-to-end technology platform designed for the industrial Internet of Things, which was acquired by PTC in 2003. We also touch on his current advice to founders in the industrial space, his board role at Turin, and what he sees lie ahead for the industry. Augmented is a podcast for leaders, hosted by futurist Thrun Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip.co, the manufacturing app platform, and associated with MFG Works, the manufacturing upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Rick, how are you today? Good morning. Well, it's a nice morning. I, I wanted to talk to you about some history. Sure. Yeah. Well, you, you're you a bit of a legend in this field, uh, Rick, uh, right? You've been basically part of almost every development in this in this field for for several years. I wanted us to spend a little time today, not just going into kind of your history and background, uh, you know, as the founder of several startups that have, uh, you know, had very significant impact on the industry, but also just bring people in a little bit to the environment and how it has changed and how, based on your perspective, you see it uh, evolving. You know, you had a, a degree from Cornell and, and then you went on to, to, to fund several companies. Can you bring us back to those days when you were studying in industrial engineering at Cornell, what was the environment then for for manufacturing, and what was it that brought you into the thought that you would, you know, start uh, engaging in, in sort of entrepreneurial software development in in manufacturing of all fields? Just to be clear, I barely graduated, so <laughs> I had fantastic time in college. But uh, so that that was when I think we thought of engineers as mechanical engineers or chemical engineers, the physical, you know, physical aspects of making things, building things inventing products, as opposed to, I think, software and technology is kind of a, a nascent concept there, at least certainly in manufacturing. Um, but uh, my, I actually switched degrees from mechanical engineering to operations research, kind of mid-stride there, realizing that looking at pieces of broken metal under a microscope, just that wasn't for me. So um, I graduated, my degree was in operations research, and um, I actually went, uh, my first uh, position was at a steel, very progressive steel company called Luke and Steel, um, doing essentially industrial engineering work. Um, however, this was what, 1985, uh, the dawn of the PC, dawn of, of uh, kind of a new gen of computing. 
and some opportunities opened up there to kind of take on some additional responsibilities that involved applying computing to uh, simulations and optimization models, kind of all the stuff that I studied, but never thought I'd actually practiced. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the, the local library, checking out software, uh, you know, take the disc home, learn, teach myself to code. Um, an opportunity then o o opened up to go into steel plant operations. So I used to run a heat, tr heat treating process. And that's one thing that a university degree won't prepare you for, you know, uh, having 15 steel workers working for you. Uh, that's where you get a real education. You also quickly realize that the exception is the rule on the manufacturing floor. And we'll talk later about how it gave me a great appreciation of the importance of the role of people in this whole process and not just technology. Um, but yeah, so that they were, um, I spent a few years in that role and then moved back over to an industrial computing group. Um, and we were applying at the time, very advanced technology, uh, mini computers, uh, user, very uh, innovative user interfaces, high levels of automation to some of these processes. In fact, the, the very site that I worked um, and the very operations that I worked at was, was one of the first places for that. Um, so that's kind of where I got into the technology side of things. But I, I like to say I, I was blessed and lucky, right? A company, this, you know, crusty old steel company happened to be very, very um, committed to investing in technology. And it, gave, it, you know, it was a learning opportunity for me. Um, and then kind of, you know, across the, the years, I, I moved into systems integration. I did some stuff in, in discrete manufacturing. Um, I, uh, I, I had the opportunity again, you know, luck sometimes happens here to work for uh, arguably the first um, well-known company in the industrial software space, a company called Wonderware. Uh, first IPO in the space. Um, and I joined very early, which is kind of cool. Give us a, I mean, the, the Wonderware story is somewhat famous for people inside of manufacturing, but just in case there are some listeners here who don't really appreciate kind of how early Wonderware was, what was the situation, you know, sure. when you created your first product and why in your account has it become so emblematic of that early, early sure. era? And, sure. and what year are we talking about exactly when, when that sort of entered the stage with Wonderware? So, so late 80s, early 90s, Wonderware came on the scene. Uh, I joined in, I believe it was 93, and my role there was actually in sales. So you'll find that uh, a lot of my late experiences are kind of all the elements that help build a successful business, sales, marketing, technology. Um, so the, the founding team there, and you, you, there'll be a circle of life moment here in a little bit when we talk about how ThingWorks came to be. Uh, the two key co-founders there, Dennis Moran and uh, Phil Huber, um, recognized the value um, and they, they harnessed this, uh, the PC revolution and, and Microsoft Windows. So we're talking, you know, way, the Wayback Machine when Windows looked sort of like the Mac user interface. Uh, there wasn't a lot of PC application on the plant floor. There were some very interesting companies that I had worked with, um, competitors to Wonderware, but a bit earlier, companies like Innolution. But we're just kind of at that inflection point where, where people were comfortable with the role of the personal computer as this kind of human interface uh, to all the automation systems that we had. And what Dennis and Phil did was really twofold. Um, and, and this, I think, ties into a lot of the innovation that we're seeing today is they democratized the ability to build applications. They made it easy and fun. So the whole experience wasn't coding. It was very visual. Um, it, it leveraged uh 
uh, kind of a drag and drop experience. Um, you didn't need to understand software to apply it. You could build these incredible applications, like literally in you know minutes or hours, connect them to the physical world. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen some of the classic applications they built, but they're those process mimics that very dynamic graphics that represent the you know the physical world. Um, and I learned a lot during that period about you know that the importance of two things. One is ease of use and that that just empowering others to build applications. We we um, particularly in the manufacturing domain. Second was ironically the importance of of marketing. Right, if there's one thing that company did extraordinarily well, in addition to having a great product, was uh, getting the message out there, maintaining a larger than life image, and the company grew rapidly to. 5 million, 10 million, 15, 20, and, and on and on, and then IPO'd. But there wasn't anybody in the industry that didn't know the name. You'd go to a trade show. Um, this is a company that, to, to kind of put some perspective, I think the first year I was there, we did about 20 million in revenues. Um, we spent about a million five on a party. So that's kind of uh, the priorities were, were well balanced there. But what a just extraordinary group of people uh, to learn from, uh, men, you know, I, I developed lifelong mentors and friends at that company that fast forward to, you know, in my last company, uh, I got uh, some of those same people came and joined my team. So it was a complete honor to work with them again. Um, uh, so, yeah. It's a, so back in those days, what, what was it that Wanderer, apart from the marketing side and yeah. like you said, the menu menus and things, first of all, who who was the target audience at this point? Was this still process engineers that were doing this or were, was it still the IT department? Um, no, typically managing? process engineers. And that was the democratization, right? Taking it out of that. To, let's go back to my, my time in the steel industry. We were writing, you know, Fortran code, PLM code. We're, we're writing code. We're uh, very, you know, creating database, all, all the kind of classic development processes. And it was part of a corporate IT function. Now this 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 shifts to to, to uh, empowering two main groups: process engineers inside these manufacturing companies, and secondly, a new breed of systems integrators that were very very focused on this automation domain. So historically, they may have done the physical automation, the PLCs, the actuators, the you know sensing, distributed control systems. Now they were able to take on this role. Um, two th- two other things happen. Just prior to the advent of things like Intellution and Wonderware, that that user experience was physical gauges and push buttons and you know and things like that and sliders. Now it became digital. I mean, this was in a way this was almost like you know, this was magic at the time, right? It's virtual reality. It was it's, it's like a lot of people the first time. Never forget my mother the first time she played solitaire on a PC. You know, and that virtual card dragging, it was, it was utter magic, right? Well, sim- similar experience here, right? People were able to reproduce these and, and rapidly reconfigure. But to your point, I would say, yeah, it was those in-house process engineers and the systems integrators that helped implement these systems. Were you uh, were you all aware of how innovative you were? I mean, clearly the marketing department thought you, you were something special, but did you realize at the time how sort of, timeless and etched into kind of manufacturing history, wonder where it would become later. Were you aware of how far ahead this was or were, were the customers telling you that clearly? That's a great question. I, I think it was a combination of the above. We had a, a almost cult-like customer following um, that was was pretty unique and it, it created a lot of energy that you knew you were doing something interesting. 
but we had very legitimate competitors who were also doing super cool stuff. Um, I think the another kind of life lesson here was a lot of companies create great products. To bring great products to market at scale is a whole other task, right? It's a whole other challenge. And um, I think what we had going for us was an absolutely extraordinary distribution channel, global distribution channel, some very energetic, bright people, independent businesses that could sell, support, implement um, this technology. That allowed us to achieve scale um, pretty quickly. But um, the customers were the the primary feedback loop, right? We won all kinds of awards from the trade trade rags and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think I definitely think it was the kinds of applications that the customers were building were certainly, you know, that's that that always gives you energy, right? When you see that, hmm. Rick, give me a, another sense of uh, as we're sort of moving to to your next company. Yeah. Just j- just bring us back to that time with the early years of Wonderware. Yeah. What were some of the things that was challenging to to you, you know, on, on on the application side then that today we would sort of laugh of and it was sure. it would just be like a line item. What were some of the things that were really complicated that you were so proud of having accomplished? Well let's let's just take the obvious, which is, you know, you sort of the inverse of Moore's law, right? We're if we turn the clock back that many years, we have half as much compute power every year. Um, and to have a very graphical, dynamic user experience um, it had to be reliable. I would not underestimate the, the incredible work that that development team did to take not only a new product in, in what we built with InTouch, uh, which was the product at the time, but also Windows itself, right? It, it wasn't evolved. It wasn't mature. It certainly wasn't targeted at these kind of mission-critical applications, so um, those were the kind of things you had to work with. You had to make it robust, reliable, uh, and, and take advantage of, of very, very limited, you know, compute and visualization capability at the time. Hmm. Uh, change the modalities by way people typically, you know, we were also all used to keyboards at the time. Now it's touch, it's, it's mouse, it's a different means of interaction. And then how do you bring that? Some interesting challenges like, uh, I'm a task worker down on the floor in protective equipment and gloves, and how do I interact with that, right? So uh, all kinds of creative stuff that just to, to try and bring a whole new modality of, of human interaction to a pretty demanding segment. So what, what then happened to you? Uh, what happened around you leaving uh, Wonderware and moving on to kind of next challenges? Because you, you, you've also had a foray in sort of larger companies, but then you immediately went back to to the startup world. Give, give, give me a sense of what, what was your thinking then. Sure. So um, there was a little detour, as there often are in our careers. Um, I, I left and um, experiment. I actually came back to Wonderware a second time prior to my first startup in a product management role. I got to see uh, uh, M&A. So we got involved in a, a, a couple key acquisitions that I was intimately involved in. Uh, so that was another learning experience for me. Um, then I saw this opportunity kind of um, at, at a level above the wonderwares of the world, of the OSI softs of the world, of all these kind of operational systems that we had. Um, they were islands, right? No one had that holistic view, a supervisor, an operator, probably no one was sharing information. And um, so the kind of light bulb went off. This is actually about when the web, web technologies were starting to get a little traction, the browser, right? The, the Netscape, Netscape effect. 
um, ubiquitous uh, IP, TCP IP connectivity, Ethernet in the plants. So um, that's when it, the kind of light bulb went off. Let's see if we can do something not dissimilar from the way a Wonderware product will connect all your sensors and controllers. Why not provide a unified way to see all the systems that you have? So basically, that's what became Lighthammer. And that was in uh, 1998 we started that company. Uh, but the intent was, again, to provide that unified view of first name. It was called the Plan Information Portal. Uh, that was another cool word at the time, right? Portals. Uh, and so that was the objective there is kind of unified visibility. Um, I started the company with some colleagues that I knew from underwear. And, and you know, we, we, uh, we built, uh, I think, something pretty groundbreaking there. And and the the situation then was there was this need for almost like an information service to to kind of I mean, it was almost like an early portal for for the industry in a sense. Yeah, I think what we found um, the the unique thing about the industrial space, I, I like to say that everything's legacy the moment it gets put in. Right, everything had proprietary APIs and interfaces and protocols. Um, yeah, my, my approach has always been solve hard problems because you, you're going to have fewer competitors and the value is there, right? So we tried to solve a pretty hard problem. All these like, you know, debabilizing all these different uh, crazy systems that were uh, scattered around. Um, yeah, so that's really what the objective was, is initially unified visibility. But then we realized if people can see that information, why can't other systems? So it became, it rapidly progressed from just being empowering people with information to empowering other line of business systems. So your supply chain systems, uh, warehouse systems, ERP systems can now be informed with, you know, real information in a timely manner. And that, that was uh, what got us on SAP's radar. Well, because because the point was there that you started discovering the importance of standards, right? And you know th there were standards at that time, but they were very basic web standards. And you you started realizing that in even in the side of the industrial field, you you had to start depending on that. Is is that also what got you kind of involved in uh, in kind of the intersection of interoperability and also open sourcing uh, certain uh, types of, of software? Yeah, in fact, we, we were actively involved in a lot of open source projects. I think that I was also early in the open source world. So if you if something was broken, no one was going to fix it for you. You fix it, right? Uh, so you know, if you want to leverage and, and, and get value out of open source, you better be prepared to give back. So as a company, we, we definitely uh, gave back to a lot of interesting projects that became part of the, the Lighthammer stack. Hmm. Um, the other thing that I think is important to understand is, and you know, this pattern this pattern repeats itself in my career, is is building tools, not applications. Right. Mm -hmm. My goal was always empower people to build interesting stuff. They're they've got the ideas, they've got the you know the the uh, um, innovate the innovations living inside them. But if it's hard, if there's friction at every point in the process cost, time, whatever, they're not going to, they're not going to undertake it. So whether it was the kind of the Wonderware stuff we were implementing, the Lighthammer, ThingWorks, uh, and nowadays with solutions like Tool, it really was all about that. Take down friction, empower uh, non-technical people to be innovators and do it fast. So Rick, then, then you, you got on the SAP's radar. Tell me a little bit about that. Not necessarily, you know, your experience there per se, but just kind of the, the difference for you in having uh, straddled 
a startup that gets yeah. on the radar of a large company, and now, now you're working in a large company. What's the situation there? What, what is their understanding of the shop floor, and, and, and how, how does that all work? Because it gets more complicated when you're in that kind of a, of a software environment. Well, I think SAP was a very good place to be for a number of reasons. Um, SAP was dominant in the manufacturing vertical, right? In terms of cus- manufacturing customers, the vast majority of them ran SAP for their back office systems. Um, SAP had solutions, kind of light solutions for the manufacturing domain, but um, a desire to go deeper. Um, secondly, they were launching a um, uh, really kind of a partner ecosystem at the time. Wanted to prove that, in fact, partners are an integral part to, to, you know, to their offerings. Um, so we were able to kind of get that visibility but also we started stealing some revenue. So when you start kind of customers, you start taking customer spend, oh, instead of upgrading that, that module in my ERP system, I'm going to spend uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars on my plant floor. That gets you on the radar too. Hmm. Um, interesting side note. So after SAP, um, the salespeople told us something fascinating. If you think about in a typical manufacturing company, there's arguably four to seven times more, um, you know, blue collar. I hate the term blue collar task worker, you know, frontline workers, so to speak. But that's got a new meaning nowadays uh, as, as opposed to back office. Secondly, we had something that not only had a, li- a user license for each um, manufacturing uh, worker, but also a per uh, manufacturing site cost. So think about comparing selling something to the CFO's office that'll run in a data center. The scale and size of the deals were pretty substantial and there was real value being created. So I think in the first year, our sales grew like 800%, 900% from a pretty good base. Having that um, ready uh, base of manufacturing customers to sell into a global company with a global sales and support presence, it's pretty easy to get traction there. But then you you had a stint back at Wonderware, right? Before you went on to to found a new company. What what, what was that like? So you you came back that and now kind of almost running the show, I guess, at, at Wonderware for a little bit. Not not really, because I think the company. This is an interesting dynamic. The company had grown substantially by that point. So from I don't know sixty people when I first my first experience to probably eight hundred at that point. Um, I was a remote uh, remote CTO, which was had. This was long before remote work was a thing, uh, so that was it was extremely challenging. Um, yeah. And I th- I just think it was the those dynamics kind of made it um, uh, probably not as effective as I could be. That said, you know a lot of what we were um, some work that I had done in SAP research is what kind of led to the ideas behind ThingWorks. And I actually think, to be blunt, I think Wonderware at the time could have realized those pretty pretty well. They, they could have, collectively, we could have brought that product to market probably faster, what became ThingWorks. But it just, for a variety of reasons, it wasn't the right time, fit, location, all those kinds of things. So dove back into it again, got the band back together, so to speak. How, how did that happen? Because at this point, you're not new to startups, and right. you have had a taste of the corporate world, sure. uh, you know, in, in fact, in sort of two leading positions, sure. I guess. What is it that then motivates you to go back into that grind? And, <laughs> and then you found a groundbreaking company. Well, part, part of it is you feel like you cheated on the test, right? You, you kind of, you've, you've got the scars, you've got the, 
you've, you've had the lessons learned. Um, I think we had a pretty well bounded idea on what the new product was going to be, how we were going to take it to market. So I think we actually went in with a pretty solid plan rather than just a, you know, a, uh, hey, we're going to do some R&D. Secondly, uh, my, you know, my business partners at Lighthammer were my business partners at ThingWorks, Common Investors, um, and, uh, and some, some new folks that I work with at Wonderware joined the team. It was sort of, I'm not going to say we couldn't fail. There were a lot of things we could have done wrong, but we had a, a, an incredible team of people with a lot of experience building companies like this, selling software like this. Um, I had a pretty good feeling that that you know we, we were on the right track there. And what exactly was ThingWorks in the in the early days? Because you know you read things like machine to machine, and those are terms that yeah. only much later, right? And you know today we call things call it Internet of Things, but you guys were very very early, honestly, in in, in that domain to produce products in that space when most people were just starting. You know, machine to machine didn't mean anything to people and, back then. And, and I think where we did well was going a little bit beyond that. And you'll see, once again, it's a pattern that repeats itself, the importance of people, the machines, and the other systems and processes that people have in their companies. Synthesizing all those together is actually where the, just the, the value nexus is just massive, right? Any one of those kind of taken in isolation any, or the connections between them, yeah, there's, there's value to be done. So we went in kind of with a broad, rather than just machine to machine. And there were some companies doing cool stuff just for, you know, getting updates down to an MRI machine or whatever. But we tried to go beyond that. Um, we also realized early on what we, the, the classic issue, it's good to know what you don't know. And um, remote access over unreliable links and all that stuff was something, you know, we'd been, we'd live my team had primarily lived in what we would jokingly call the intranets of things, right? Everything's on the local network, um, you know, different considerations, right? Hmm. So we acquired a company and a couple of super team, a small company that had a lot of expertise in the kind of internet of things in that remote connectivity, remote management. And kind of that was this, the second wave of rocket fuel to get things going. Um, That's interesting you said that because I think the temptation for many would be, you know, you're so far ahead and you start building things and you're, you're building things in the future. But the, I mean, surely, you know, the reality is the shop floor and other things and you're dealing with poor internet connections, you know, forget skills. I mean, you're actually dealing with, with a network that, that doesn't scale to your idea. Exactly right. And, you know, when, it's, it was a very interesting balance between, uh, I oversimplify it, kind of that industrial IoT is kind of smart connected operations and things like that. So factories, power, power plants, and then connected fleets of stuff, trucks, MRI machines, uh, light towers in cities, radically different requirements. You know, one's 99%, 98% on-prem, one's 99.9% cloud, one's uh, intermittent, unreliable, expensive connectivity. One's, you know, uh, reliable, you know, isolate. But to have, so we built a platform to serve both of those tasks. In retrospect, we probably made compromises along the way to accommodate that. But still, today, I think, um, you know, PTC's revenue with ThingWorks is is fairly well split between those two domains. Um, but that that was an interesting challenge on its own because the requirements were dramatically different. 
But again, you you got acquired. So is this a, a pattern in your companies, or is it more a pattern in the field that you know at a certain point? Because I mean, I, I'm making this up here, but maybe yeah. is there something about the industry itself that lends itself very very easily to you know just in order to get that scale, you sort of have to be acquired, and it's very desirable, or is it more a choice that you each time made to say, you know, we've built it to a certain scale? I think in our our segment, um, you, you know, there are, there are the rare few that will, that an IPO track makes sense and it's achievable. Uh, I think for the most part, companies in our domain are they're tucking in acquisitions to, you know, uh, t- technology companies, cloud companies, enterprise app companies, industrial automation companies. So they have the luxury of you know we can be the innovation engine. It doesn't have to come off. I mean, if you think about a, a big co that wants to build something organically, every dollar they spend, first of all, they're typically you know ten to twenty times, and I, I, I it's just reality less efficient in developing software for a variety of reasons. And that money comes off the bottom line. So it's, it's, it's actually an interesting dynamic that it's almost more attractive for them as well. But the thing work story is super interesting in the sense that um, I, I told this someone the other day. So Jim Hebelman, super visionary, right there. He, he had this, this concept of, you know, the digital twin and IOT with connected with products um, way back and he actually took some of his best and brightest people, his CTO, a number of other people, moved them out of their office, put them in the uh, innovation, uh, Cambridge Innovation Center, and said, go create something. Hmm. Well, along the way, we got introduced to that team, um, and they came to the conclusion that, hey, it's going to be faster, uh, cheaper, uh, we can get to market, capture, mind share quicker through acquisition. And if you think about it, that's a very mature is not the right word. Um, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for here, but it's uh, you've just been given an opportunity to to entrepreneur, right? You've got a clean sheet of paper, all the fun stuff after you know grinding out your day job for for years, and you make that decision to well, you know, we're not going to do that. We're going to go buy a company. I have huge respect for that, hmm. and it turned out to be a, you know a very good decision for everyone involved. Um, but uh, so that's actually how that happened. We were uh, an entrepreneuring effort at a at a you know at a relatively large company decided to go and and become acquisitive instead, and uh, that's worked out quite well. So we haven't talked so much about uh, the surrounding companies, uh, you know, throughout these years. But you know, were there other companies doing innovative things? Uh, you know, I, I'm not so familiar with the history sure. of all of the kind of less successful or or less visible manufacturing IT companies throughout the late uh you know the early 90s what were what was wrong with some of those and why don't we talk about them i mean are they also still part of the picture were there smaller acquisitions that that go into this history yeah there's actually a lot that we're doing it right um you know it was a big enough pie that uh, the gorilla you know in the in the segment might only have a 20 some percent market share so it was, it was still fairly fragmented, it's partially because of geography, um, partially because of different segments, and partially just because it was such a big opportunity. The companion market to a lot of what I was doing, for example, at Wonderware and Lighthammer, was the data side of it, right? So that's the, the historian companies. Greatest example of that is you know, recently the acquisition of OSI Soft by Aviva for $5 billion. 
biggest little company you never heard of, right? I mean, uh, just a fantastic success story. They stuck to what they did very well and built, uh, you know, essentially a, a dominant um, market position. They had competitors with good products as well. But um, I mean, they're, they're one of those success stories in that space that's only visible to, to most people now. Um, we had, you know, we had competitors in almost every, every company I've ever worked at that had great solutions. But this is, again, where I think the, the uh, X Factor stuff comes into play. How you, uh, your, your go-to-market machine, um, the passion that your team had and people have, it's, that's contagious, right? If, if people really believe and, and, and they interact with customers and partners, it's, it's just magic. Second thing was, um, again, that, you know, the, were you really doing useful stuff for customers? Um, some companies were software companies. Some companies were really just integration companies with a masquerading as software companies. Uh, but, Tron, you know this, there's no shortage of bright people on this planet. And it's... Uh, well, sure, there's no shortage of bright people, but I guess this is kind of the third segment that I wanted us to get into. You, you kind of have a third career now, which is this portfolio life, I guess. I mean, you can characterize <laughs> it yourself, but I don't know how to explain it otherwise, where you're seeing, first of all, a, a, a number of companies and a maturity, I guess, in the space that's a little different, but you are in a different stage in your career. Yeah. And I want to eventually get to Tulip and, and, and to discuss kind of why, why you got involved with that. But But first, maybe you can address sort of this portfolio things that you're doing right now, sure. obviously mentoring a lot more and getting involved on the board side. How do you see the last sort of, even just the last five years, what, what's happening right now? What, where are we right now with manufacturing software? So generically, I would say it's, it's a, I'm doing manufacturing and adjacent stuff, kind of IoT, industrial. Um, I, I, I'm so excited that it's cool again. Right. It, Cause it was for two decades. It was like, well, you were never concerned about that. Surely right. <laughs> it was, but right. But you know, we were, well, so what's the old, you know, in the land of the blind, the one eyed man is King. So if you were cool within your segment, right, you didn't have to be that great. And you could, um, I'm underselling what, what we achieved at the different companies. But, um, I think, uh, it really has visibility now. There's investment money flowing into it. I think the increasing importance of, uh, we kind of hit that little productivity inflection point where it started to flatten out. You know, people are investing in technology. Uh, the challenges around people, you know, there's just not a lot of know-how uh, or there's much less know-how about everything from manufacturing operations to the different tasks that get performed to the technologies. So how do we offset that? So technology starting to fill an increasingly important role. Uh, focused VCs and focused investors and focused uh, uh, incubators around this kind of stuff. I think that's the, probably the biggest change. And then, you know, like any technology segment, the building blocks, the Lego blocks that we build from just get better and better and better, right? Mm -hmm. Someone that wants to add, you know, AI capabilities to their solution today, it's it's just it never been easier, right? I want to add vision. Oh. You know, now what you do with it is very, can be very differentiating. But my point is that the building blocks we, we have today are just better than ever. Um, I think the challenge, what's changed maybe in a negative, I think the way you get to customers uh, to get to market has, has changed and, and become more challenging. 
a simple example, if you think about, you know, a venture funded or otherwise funded uh, startup, turn the clock back 10 or 15 years, we primarily sold perpetual licenses plus maintenance. So you get a big chunk of revenue up front. Today in the SaaS and subscription world, in essence, we're all in the financing business. We're financing our cost of sales, our R&D. So the capital requirements for companies in our segment are bigger than they ever have been. Um, and we see that with some of the some of the raise, raises. But that's just a reality. It's a, that, that dynamic perhaps even gets gets uh, ignored sometimes. But it is a big change. Um, yeah. And then, you know, just... Uh, and what got you to Tulip? So I, I have to... I think it was actually indirectly through Wonderware, if I recall. So uh, Natan and team and Ronnie and team were looking around at comparables. What are some companies that have been successful kind of growing um, a business in this space? Um, and, uh, you know, he kind of had the hit list of Wonderware folks that he wanted to talk to. And, and uh, somewhere, somehow, I don't recall the exact moment, but we connected up and uh, I got it. I got it. When he explained what they were doing, the light bulb went off. I said, I'd love to be part of this. So I'm both an investor and advisor in the company. Um, and also what a just that I gel. I, I love smart people like innovative <laughs> people and there's no shortage of those in Natan's team. So uh, kind of first visit there, seeing what they were doing, meeting the team. It was like, all right, mm -hmm. there's something going on here. So, so tell me, so tell me what it is that you saw, because I, I was also, you know, I was at MIT at the time when, when yeah. Natan created the company, and I yeah. remember vividly going into the the lab or you know yeah. whatever you want to describe his early workspace, because yeah. that's that's what it was, right? It felt right. like a, a lab, sure, but but the stuff that was coming out was was incredible. What do you think? Was it the product vision, or was it just the capability of the people uh, that you? that you saw early on and, and kind of now that you're sort of looking at what Tulip yeah. and it's, you know, and it's environment, right? What, what is being accomplished right now? Would you say with this yeah. new app reality? I think it was the aggregate of all of the above that really, because great example, right? The first, if you recall the kind of first demo scenario with the mixed reality projecting instructions onto the work. That was crazy. That, that demo was for me, the demo of all demos, you know, in the, Absolutely. And I said, wow, crazy. they're taking a very fresh look at, the, at, a, at, a, at a problem here. At an, and you know, obviously with their collective backgrounds, really interesting mix of skill sets, they're going to do cool stuff. Um, and, and I think Natan and team would be the first to admit they were coming in with not a lot of domain knowledge, right? They had been involved in companies that made stuff, but a lot of the, you know, there was a, there was a learning curve for sure. And that's what, you know, a lot of the, not just myself, but they had a lot of advisors, customer feedback, um, brought in some folks into the team, and then just learn kind of on-the-job training, right? Engaging with customers, engaging in pilots. So it, I think it took a, a year or two to kind of get grounded in what are some of the realities of, of the shop floor. Not that they didn't have a good idea at the beginning, but once that kind of confluence of smart people, customers starting to do cool stuff with it, um, and and you know and the product itself evolving, and then that's kind of when the rocket, you know, the rocket took off. Well, this is interesting what you're saying here because 
as I'm interviewing a lot of people who have innovated in this space, time and again, right, what comes back is this is not just your average software innovation garage, right? You, you, you know, a lab is not a garage, right? Literally, you can be as smart as you are. You can have a big team of smart people. But unless you get coupled up with that manufacturing shop floor experience, yep. you don't stand a chance, right? You just can't build, you can't get past the demo. And, Tell and, me more about that well, because also, you have had it ingrained. Like we talked about this a, a few minutes ago, you started out that way, sure. but, but there's so many more innovators these days that they can't, well, maybe they, they can start out, but they haven't started out on the shop floor. So many of them. I wish they would all, you know, everybody that wants to get in this space needs to do if, if like the equivalent of in the law enforcement would be a ride along, right? You go, you go spend it, spend a couple nights work in the streets you realize how things really work, right? It's, it's not like TV. It's not like you read, read in your textbooks. Um, so there's no substitute for, even if it's like super concentrated real world experience, actually going out and, and spending some time with customers, uh, you know, re real world experience. But I also think it's the third leg of the stool, which is important, right? It's the technology expertise and creating products is manufacturing domain knowledge and then figuring out how to get it in front of customers and sell it. That I, We can never underestimate the importance of that. So that's another thing that I think Tulip was, took a lot of uh, very iterative and A-B style testing approaches to go-to-market models, right? And they continue to innovate and experiment. Um, it, it's a challenging space to do low touch, but they've, they've found a niche with that, particularly as a means to plant seeds of customers that can take a first taste of the technology. Like, wow. That's pretty awesome. Um, the holy grail, I think, for a lot of companies in our space is trying to figure out how to do that. No one's really completely cracked the code yet. So it's it's a kind of combination model. But the domain expertise, um, um, a couple key hires, for example, I think a great example is the hires they made in the pharmaceutical industry, right? So life sciences now has become a really, really powerful vertical for Tulip as a result of bringing in some domain expertise Plus the evolution of the product from kind of a platform and tooling and, and you know, and some hardware to application. So the app, app marketplace that they launched, um, now when I'm a buyer, you can approach not only that developer buyer, that integrator buyer, but now you can approach a business buyer and say, I've got, you know, all these apps you can assemble together or just use kind of as is. That was also a maturity thing, right? So it took the domain knowledge interaction with customers, and then you can progressively build more into the software itself unless that the customer has to configure. That maturation is, has been pretty exciting to see. Rick, we've, we've been through a history here that's very, very exciting to me and I think to, to, to listeners. What's, what's next for the digital factory, for the manufacturing execution systems, all these acronyms. I try to shy away from them a little bit because we had so many, many other interesting things to talk about today. But, but if you're looking to the next decade, the holy grail you mentioned or, or this like final integration project that would, I guess, marry software, hardware, shop floor, yeah. and, and, and considering all the challenges that the, just the past year has brought us, and let's not even bring into it all of the other challenges of this decade and, and, and of this century, you know, if you're going to go into the big words, right. where are we headed? I, I'll maybe focus on where I hope we head, um, which is a little, perhaps a little bit different. Um, I, I, I started the discussion that with one of the things that I learned in my first job working in the plant flow was the importance of people. 
the knowledge that they have, the experience that they have. People in a lot of our processes are still the sensor, the algorithm, and the actuator, right? Like it or not, I think it's the, uh, the, we haven't yet reproduced the human hand. Uh, we haven't yet reproduced the human brain. There's some really unique things about humans. And in that context, I hope that the next decade or so is about collaborative technology and how we uh, use robotics and AI and information and, and mixed reality to help people be better at what they do. And, um, you know, there is, there's always a risk of dehumanization in something like that, right, where people become interchangeable and they, you know, they don their, their Iron Man assembly suit and they, you know, but um, – but I'm, I'm maybe take a more optimistic view that it's really we're, we're going to continue to increase uh, productivity and output. But there's so many roles like that that could benefit from the synthesis of all these cool technologies that we have. I maintain that there's no such thing as an AI market. There's no such thing as an IoT market that they're all just building blocks. Right. It's what we assemble to solve some actual problem that is interesting. Um, I'm hoping and I, I'm confident that the the bar to implement these things becomes increasingly lower. AR is a great example today. It's hard. It's building content is time consuming and difficult. So maybe that's the next one that needs to mix, you know, bring the content creation to mix reality down. Next gen robotics, cobots, and some really interesting stuff happening there. The democratization of machine vision and audio and meta sensing that's happening. Um, so, but it's interesting you're saying there still are building blocks and there still are collaboration challenges. And maybe those collaboration challenges are going to have to last longer than, than a decade too. And may, may, maybe we need more building blocks. But what comes after that? Once a critical mass of building blocks uh, get, get assembled, and you have watched this you know, sure. decade by decade, that there's a certain coalescence of building blocks and then a new platform is formed. Yeah. But but still, in this industry, as you have said so far, most of the time, these new platforms merge into the more traditional platform players, or they merge into more established. Is that a pattern that you see also in this decade, or will we see the first mega conglomerates come out of completely new manufacturing combination platforms that are integrating all of these technologies and doing something truly new and can sustain kind of their own new creation, whatever iteration of the manufacturing industry that would become. And, and I don't know if it's going to be necessarily the suppliers that become the mega innovators in a perfect, in what, what may well happen uh, is that it, the manufacturers themselves start to become, because the tools have become so powerful that they become the mega. If, if you look, if you actually take a, a deep dive into a lot of really innovative manufacturing companies, um, it's the machines that they built to make the product. It's the processes they use to make the product. That's where some of the real breakthroughs happen. That doesn't come from outside. Now, sometimes suppliers you know, can provide some of that equipment. Um, so maybe this is just an amplifier for that. And the second thing is I've, you know, I know it's coming is this massive disintermediation of manufacturing, right? So we already have companies where the brand owner contracts the design of the product it contracts people to make the product. It contracts people to service the product and, and sell the product. So they're literally just the brand name on top of it. Now you, you matrix that, right, where you have companies with very, very flexible manufacturing capacity, whether that's additive or traditional, you know, who knows, right? But I, I think a manufacturing supply chain 
10, 20 years from now is going to look radically different. Not fewer companies will be making stuff on their own, but the companies that are making stuff will be really applying some innovative technology to, to be flexible, versatile. That's never going to happen for kind of grunt commodity stuff where the costs, you know, cost to produce matters. You do purpose built, but um, increasingly look at the proliferation rate on new product introductions and electronic products and, you know, so many different things in our lives, clothing, right? There's so many things that could, we could innovate faster if the manufacturing systems themselves could adapt faster. Maybe that's an outcome. That, well, I mean, whichever of these scenarios pan, pan out, it seems to me that at least segments of this industry, if it, if it remains, you know, if you can talk about it as one yeah. industry anymore, is going to be super exciting. So that brings me, I guess, to just our, my closing question. If you were to advise a young person today who is maybe they're thinking about college or they're they're, yeah. they're thinking about, you know, should I... Should I follow my passion, which happens to be kind of actually, you know, going and making and doing, uh, building things, or, or should I get a theoretical education, or is that a false choice? And where should they go today? You know, there's like this dichotomy between, you know, getting a four-year education versus just going and getting some skills so that, like we have been talking about, so you have some inkling of what you actually need to be, uh, to understand in order to produce the innovations. I think all of the above, and let me elaborate on that a little bit. My um, uh, when I was when I was in university, I, I created my own co-ops two summers. So I worked, you know, I sought them out. My son's at Drexel University now, and a co-op program is an integral part of, of his education there. Um, for a lot of folks, getting exposed kids exposed to um, co-ops and those kinds of internships give you two things. It might tell you what you don't want to do just as much as you want to do, which is, I think a lot of people in their career would wish they knew that earlier, right? Um, it, it helps you get that real world experience and, you know, just interacting with people. But so I think that aspect of it in your university education, doing um, a diverse and interesting set of co-ops would be very valuable. A liberal arts, I think, you know, having a, a liberal arts aspect to any tech, technical uh, education or, or focus skills education is still valuable. You have to know how to read, write, speak, uh, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Design is ever increasingly important. You know, the, these, the, the polymath is going to be a, you know, a, a great skill to have. Um, secondly, uh, you, you, learning has never been easier, right? You've got so many online resources as well. If you need a technical skill, I mean, I, I could probably learn neurosurgery on YouTube if I really needed to, you know, if there was no other option, you know, 60% chance the patient would live. But that's, we have so many different resources. I'm a believer in lifelong learning, so it's not a static thing. Um, certainly of a highly specialized skill, if you're going to be a, a geneticist doing CRISPR or whatever, yeah, you need to spend eight, 10 years of, of uh, true rigorous study to be, to master a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, maybe not, maybe that's even getting easier, but. Rick, it was, it, you just brought me back to eighth grade and my one week internship at the <laughs> National Geological uh, <laughs> Lab where I was sorting through minerals and, 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 you know, it, it, it's incredible how one week is you know, etched into my mind. I don't think about it every time and I haven't thought about it for years, but what you were just describing with like seeking out these internships, sure. it brought it all back to me and I can almost remember the, how the Monday was different from the Tuesday rotation. 
what I went throughout that institute, it, there is just no comparison to that kind of real life experience. And, and the other advice that I give any any uh, any person is a versatile set of skills, right? Do a sales role sometime in your life. You might hate it. You might despise it. But you're going to learn what the salespeople in your company go through, right? You might love it. And it becomes a career. Um, you know, communications. What do your marketing folks have? Having a diverse set of skills uh, and, and getting exposure to that. Maybe it happened accidentally for me. Just those were the opportunities that presented themselves. But I, I think that's uh, having that diverse skill set and toolbox is extremely valuable, particularly if you want to start a company. Rick, I thank you so much. We have gone way over what I had promised and, and even my promise to the, to our listeners to be very succinct. But this has been, for me, at least a fascinating roller coaster through your career and, and throughout uh, manufacturing, both history and future. I thank you very, very much. My pleasure. You have just listened to episode 10 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim. The topic was a brief history of manufacturing software. Our guest was Rick Bolada partner at TwinThread and co-founder of ThingWorks. In this conversation, we talked about how Rick has shaped manufacturing software history and the lessons learned from being an early employee at Wonderwear, the famous precursor to manufacturing automation back in 1993, a company first sold to British engineering giant Siba in 1998, which merged with BTR to form Invensys, which in turn merged with French multinational Schneider Electric, and later the CTO. Rick Pallotta was also the co-founder of Lighthammer Software, which was later acquired by SAP. Then, in 2009, founding ThingWorks, the first complete end-to-end technology platform designed for the industrial internet of things, which was acquired by PTC in 2003. We also touched on his current advice to founders in the industrial space, his board role at Tulip, and what he sees lie ahead for the industry. My takeaway is that Wonderware, Lighthammer, and ThingWorks are prominent parts of manufacturing software history, and there's a chance that the fourth company he now is involved with, Tulip, also will be. I do things with things is Rick Bolada's motto. The things he does, he does them well, and it is an internet of things more than anything else. I, for one, am eagerly listening to what he predicts will happen next. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode four, A Renaissance of Manufacturing, or episode five, Plug and Play Industrial Tech. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast.